Last week, um, if you were here with us, you, you remember that the whole week in the passage was about David dancing before the Ark of the Covenant after the Ark of the Covenant, after a disastrous start, was finally brought into the city of Jerusalem for the very first time. And I ended the sermon with this thought. If only you and I could see David's dance when David from heaven saw what Jesus has done for you and I. You know, a thousand years later, Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, the true king of kings. And he entered Jerusalem for that final time. But instead of celebrating him like we did David and the ark coming into Jerusalem, what did we do? We crucified him. And I ended the sermon with this thought that what no one could see was that when Jesus was on the cross, that was when the true Ark of the Covenant was actually present in Jerusalem. Because the Ark is filled with the promises of God, that's the Ten Commandments, and the life of God, which is manna. And therein, Jesus on the cross is our life and our promise. Amen? Amen. So this week, we get to read about how David's plan to build God a new home, um, how that comes about, and then God's resp- surprising response. And I, I love this, uh, this passage this week because it gives a really good picture of what it's like after we've said yes to Jesus. Like, what does this life of faith look like? How do we do this, right? How do we live this way? Um, And so that's what this week's passage is about. But let's pray before we do anything else, yeah? Oh, Holy Spirit, thank you so much for your presence already. And we ask for more, more Holy Spirit. Would you open our ears and open our eyes? Would you speak to our heart now? And we specifically mute and bind up anything opposed to Jesus that would be bothering us or distracting us now in Jesus' name. Father, help us. We're desperate for you to break chains and free our hearts and deliver us from our bondage. So we give you permission to convict us and to renew us and to breathe life into us and to change us. We're desperate for you, Jesus, to do this work. And all God's beloved, chosen, worthy, obedient, forgiven saints said... Let's read together 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Are you ready? Here we go. After the king was settled in his palace. By the way, chapter 8, he's going to fight the Philistines again. So this is not like forever and ever. This is just things calm down for a little bit for David. So the Lord had given rest from all his enemies. Read with me. Around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. So David is, I mean, he's like at the top of his game, right? He still has abs. You know, he feels good. He's young, he's strong, he's victorious, he's a king, like the enemies are subdued, like he feels good. And so David thinks to himself, look, I'm going to do something for God. I feel so grateful about what he's done in my life. 
And here I am in this gorgeous house, and God, God's presence in the Ark of the Covenant is camping in a tent in my backyard. Like, I can, I can do better than this. And um, can anybody relate? Right? It's like, man, God has given us so much. I was just talking to some new visitors from Bakersfield. One day you'll get here, and it'll be good, you know? So many of us, like, we've left that exodus, and we've come here, and we've left that slavery and bondage behind. And it's so good. And when we're here, we're like, oh, man, what can I do? Like, I, I want to, like, what, what can we build for you, Jesus? Like, what can we do for you? And I'll never forget my first Sunday here. I've told you this before. And those of you who are here remember this. But my first Sunday here 10 years ago, I walked into the fellowship hall, and someone had broken a window, climbed in, and lit the fellowship hall on fire. And I was so disappointed that they did not just like finish the job, right? It's just like, we could have built Jesus a really great house with the insurance money. So we won't post this service online. We'll do the second service, but feel free, you know, you know like I'll just leave it unlocked at night. And, uh, So David tells Nathan, Nathan, like he tells his senior pastor, Nathan, like, here's a blank check. Ready? Here's a blank check. Let's build the ultimate church. And what senior pastor, I mean, like, that's the best day, right? Oh, you, you want to give us money? Absolutely. So Nathan says this. Next slide. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it. For the Lord is with you, and that big old check you're about to write. Absolutely. So Nathan is super excited. Now, here are two people talking about what they're going to do for God, and then God does something really, really terrible and annoying. He offers his opinion. Ready? Verse 4, read with me. But that night, now, anytime a, a sentence starts with but, you're in trouble. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, slow down there, cowboy. <laughs> now, God doesn't really say that, at least not in those words. That's the nearly inspired version of, uh, of Scripture. Uh, God, however, however, is going to save David from turning into Saul or someone worse. Now, there's nothing wrong with us working to build something incredible for Jesus. All of that is great. Notice that we, we took the offering first, then we preached this sermon, right? Um, there is something wrong, however, if we start the pattern of thinking where our plans and our actions become the center of our world. Something Paul just prayed is absolutely incredible. Jesus. We want you to be the center of our plan, the center of our heart, the center of our body, the center of our finances. We want you to be the center of all of those things. And, and when we start becoming the center of our own worlds, things go wrong in a hurry. Amen? Amen? Now, if the arsonist was successful, that morning when the arsonist broke into our church 10 years ago, they, he burned down a garage and then set, tried to burn down a, one of the industrial buildings off of Farrell. If that arsonist was successful, I would have already been gone from this church. You know why? 
is because we would have built a new facility and people would have come and you know what I, I would have thought? Oh man, aren't I fantastic? Look at all I've done for Jesus. And you know what I would think? You know, I, I need to do this, but in a different place. I need to do this in a bigger and, well, better church, right? Because I'm the one who builds. And, and, and just like all of my friends who've made that move, it would have been a disaster. It would have been an absolute disaster. I'm so grateful that God helped me with a long season of maturity, and thank you for your patience. <laughs> There's kind of one place of lostness, right? There's a couple of different ways of being lost, but there's one kind of lostness which is really hard to diagnose. Now, it's not the loss of our rebellion. I mean, when we're in full tilt rebellion, that's easy to diagnose. Jail, affairs, out of control addictions. You picking up what I'm putting down? You and everybody else go, okay, yeah, I get it, right? That's easy. The lostness that's hard to diagnose is the loss of thinking that we're found because you know Jesus, and yet in your day-to-day life, you're a functional atheist. So what we do as American Christians is that we wrap our plans and our goals and our wishes and our desires in the religious language of, I'm doing this for Jesus. And you're not, right? Or, Or even worse, we assume, well, Jesus, because he's in my life, he must love every single one of my ideas And therefore, what I do is that I just do what I think I should do, and then I sprinkle the Jesus sauce on it. You know what that Jesus sauce is, right? Jesus, bless my plans. Jesus, help me. Jesus, rescue me from my stupidity, even though I won't listen to you. Jesus, please help me hide my sin. I don't want to be exposed. Jesus, please take away the guilt I feel after being convicted by you so I don't have to repent. That's the Jesus sauce. And this kind of lost is like being married but never talking to your spouse even though you're doing everything for them. That's a special kind of lostness that's hard to diagnose. Well, yeah, I'm married. I'm doing everything for her. What is she worried about? It's like parenting but never paying attention to your kids because you're too busy working for their future. It's like owning a gym but never working out. It's like starving to death while your fridge is full of food. I shouldn't be hungry. I got everything I need. You picking up what I'm putting down? One way of knowing if you're lost like this is found in Luke 15. It's the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal means wasteful or extravagant. And this younger brother who's lost is wasteful and extravagant with his father's fortune, and so he blows it all on sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And we think that that story is about the younger brother being lost, but the reason why Jesus tells that story is he's trying to illustrate to you and I that there's two ways of being lost. There's the younger brother that gets lost that we all know, that's why we call it the prodigal son, but the story isn't about the son, the story is about the father who's prodigal. 
He's wasteful and extravagant with his love and mercy. And there's two sons who are lost. There's the old younger son who goes out. That's the out-of-control addictions, misdemeanors, felonies. That's easy to diagnose. Then there's the older son, which is you and I. The older brother is mad that the younger brother gets mercy, mad that he's doing all the right things, mad that his good father keeps on wasting his in, the older brother's inheritance on the younger brother for being generous and kind. The older brother, see, his lostness is he does all the right things but for all the wrong reasons. He wants God's stuff but not God himself. He wants God to bless his plans, God to make his plans go better, God to give him his, God's resources and money and whatever, but I don't want you, God. I just want your stuff. And that's a hard kind of lostness to diagnose. Here's some ideas, maybe some helpful tools from Luke 15. Um, if you get lost, or if you get mad that the rest of us knuckleheads are the recipients of so much mercy, you might be lost. If you rarely listen to God because you're too busy, you might be lost. If you're not the person who struggles with substance abuse or pornography or affairs or felonies or misdemeanors, then you're the older brother, which means you're just as lost as the rest of us. Welcome to the club. <laughs> So God is about to save David from what's going down, from him going down this particular road of being lost. Now, don't worry. Two chapters from now, David will fail spectacularly. But right now, God is going to work to save David from the same mistakes that Saul made before him. Does that make sense? So God wakes up Nathan, the prophet and senior pastor of Israel, to deliver a message to David and to tell Nathan, you need to return that blank check. And here's what God actually says instead of slow down there, cowboy. Ready? Here it is. Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? You, you got to ask that question. Are, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Now, wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people, hey, where's my house? How come you haven't built me one? What's going on here? How come I get the Home Depot shed? <laughs> so he's asking David, have I ever asked? Did I ask you to build me a house? Just as a side note, I love this passage. Um, God lives where you live. God is with you where you've been and where you currently are. We often think that God like waits for us here on Sunday morning. God lives with you in your house, in your room, in your trailer, in your tent. That's where God lives. He lives in you. 
But David can't quite hear this yet, so God is gonna do something grammatically quite wonderful. God is going to use the same verb conjugated the same way 23 times in this, these verses and then all the way through verse 16. See if you can pick out the verb that's conjugated the same way 23 times. Ready? Next slide. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone, and I have cut off all your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. Can you pick out the verb? I know, I emphasized it there for you. There's a little hint. Yeah, I. I took you. I've been with you. I'll make. I'll provide. I'll give. God keeps on describing what God has done, not what David has done. God keeps on describing what God will do, not what David will do. God is reminding David of something very important. Look, my, my boy, my beloved child, let's get a couple things straight here. The kingdom that I'm shaping isn't what you do for me, but what I do for you. The kingdom that I'm shaping here is a place in which I build, not you. This is a kingdom that we're dealing with, and I am the king. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that for your own life? Seven of you do. Let me ask you a question. Um, do, do you believe that your life is, is like a garden where God is the gardener and he gardens with you? Or do you feel the pressure to make everything grow all by yourself? God is telling David, God is telling you this. I'm the gardener. You are the garden. And we get to walk together through your life. And together we get to plant trees and flowers and make wands and, yes, pull weeds. Otherwise, you'll start thinking that you've got to make everything grow. And I don't know about you, but when I feel the pressure to make everything grow, you know what I do? I turn into a little bit insane. I start assessing every little thing that's in my life, and I'm, I become the worst gardener in the world. I dig up all the plants, and I scream at the roots, grow! How does that work? If Anybody a gardener here? How does it work when you keep on digging up the plants to see if they've grown? So last time I checked, screaming at the roots isn't helpful. For example, like right now in my own life, our, son, our youngest son, Levi, has been sick for almost three weeks. And April and I have been to the doctor three times. We're about to see another doctor, and we're on the waiting list for a third doctor. Now, do me a favor. Don't diagnose Levi, right? Don't ask me. He, he's, he, he'll, he'll be fine. Why do I ask this, right? No, pray, absolutely. Um, but why do I ask not to diagnose Levi? It's because that's all I've been doing, yeah. right? And, and Jesus has told me really clearly, look, I'm healing Levi. What you need to do will be really, really clear. Don't worry, it's gonna be okay. My mom, she calls me up and she said, I was at a counseling appointment. I had this prophetic vision, Andy. 
It was the weirdest thing, but I saw this ball of light on Levi's stomach and God was healing him. And it was like, oh my God, you know, and like she started weeping and I started weeping. It was amazing. But what, but what do I do? Like I hear these encouraging words from God, but what do I do? I, I research childhood cancer, right? Oh yeah, he's totally got Hodgkin's lymphoma. Or, or maybe he's got, right? So I have, I, I diagnose my son, right? Using the dangerous interweb in order to do this, right? And, and, and God is asking me, you don't have to bear this weight, Andy. You don't have to figure this out. I have people to help you. And not only that, you can trust me right now because I've promised to you that he's gonna be okay. God is saying, Andy, I'm the king. I'm the great physician, Andy. I'm the gardener, not you. Trust me, trust me. I'm providing, I'm leading, I'm lining up the resources. Trust me. Like it's one thing for me to read about David this last week trusting God and then God, as he often does, had me go through the text that I was about to preach. You know, and I failed miserably, right? Trust, not trust, trust, not trust. It was like I was, I was doing this, you know, <laughs> trust, not trust. You know, it was like over and over again. It was just like, <gasps> you know, and uh, can you relate? Am I the only one that does that? Look, you've, you've got a marriage, you've got an addiction, you have a resentment, a fear, a friend, a diagnosis. You've got something in your life that you really need God's help with. And you managing it on your own isn't working. Like you worrying about them, it's not working. You working really hard at it, isn't working. So listen to what God says to David. Listen to what God is saying to you. Here's the next verse, verse 11 in the message. One more, one more. Furthermore, God has this message for you. God himself will build you a house. David says to God, I'm gonna build you a house. And God says, mm, I'm gonna build you a house. Read with this me. It's the same verse in the ESV. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You say to God, I'm going to do this, and God says, <laughs> I'm going to do that for you. Let's read it a third time in the nearly inspired version. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Do you want to read it a fourth time, or do you got it? See, I thought David was going to build a house for God. No, God's going to build a house for David, for all humanity. Everything that we think that we're going to do for God, God is working to do for you right now. God is working right now to build for you a family, a, a career, a home, a legacy, a life that is full of hope and joy and peace and vitality. That's literally what Jesus does. When you put Jesus at the center of your life, at the center of your decisions, at the center of your peace and your healing and your finances, Jesus changes you. And what Jesus does is that he builds in you, if you're willing, if you say yes, he will build in you the kind of life and heart where God is at the center of everything and therefore everything will grow. Let me give you an example. 
When you start receiving God's love, you stop driving yourself towards exhaustion because if we don't feel loved by God, then what we'll do is that we'll try and prove ourselves on our own and that's exhausting, amen? amen? So when you start receiving God's love for you, literally saying, Jesus, I believe that you love me and you breathe, that's what it looks like, what you end up doing is that you stop resenting others for not doing enough and you stop resenting yourself for not doing enough. And then it's not only do you stop something that's negative, but then you start something that's positive. You start taking care of yourself because if you're loved, that means that you could sleep. If you're loved, that means that you could take a nap. It means that you could take a day off. It means that you could have fun and eat well, it means that you could actually take care of yourself. And then when you take care of yourself, you know what you end up doing? You start taking care of the other people in your life and now you're a source of hope. Let me give you another example. When you start receiving Jesus' mercy because you've made him the center of your little change project, right? You have areas of your life in which you want to change and you start receiving his mercy. What you do is that you stop berating yourself because without God's mercy, you have to be your own warden. And what do wardens do? They punish and they incarcerate and then they try and reform. And once you give up that job description and you start receiving God's mercy and love, what you end up doing is that you stop berating other people. And of course, we know this, that whatever tool you have using against yourself, you will then use against other people. Or put in a different way, whatever tools that you use to help yourself, you will use to help other people. And so if you're berating yourself all the time, then you will become the kind of person who criticizes everybody all the time. And when you receive God's mercy, now you have a new tool. Now, instead of criticizing other people, you know what you start doing? You start encouraging yourself and other people and now you're no longer a source of discouragement, now you're a source of joy. Can you see it? Yes. It's I'm receiving something from Jesus, I'm stopping the old pattern and I'm starting the new thing now that he's at the center of that part of my life. And so God tells David the same thing. With me at the center, I'm going to do something in you and through you that's beyond your wildest dreams. Let's read verse 11 together. When your life is complete and you're buried with your ancestors, then I'll raise up your child. And I'll firmly establish his rule and he will build a house to honor me and I will guarantee his kingdom's rule permanently. So this is Solomon. Solomon will build the temple. It'll be spectacular. And then just God throws this in at the end. Verse 16. Oh, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. You know, here's that one for you, David. What is going on? See, Jesus is saying this. Our Heavenly Father is saying this, when I'm at the center of everything, where I'm the builder, where I'm the savior, where I'm the giver, where I'm the gardener, 
that kingdom is going to last forever. And therefore, David, the Messiah is going to come from your family, this kingdom where I'm at the center of everything. That's why if you read Matthew and Luke, the genealogies of both Joseph, Jesus' stepdad, and Mary find their origin in David. Now, place yourself in David's shoes. You've just heard a message from God. It's turned your whole world upside down. And you, the forgotten shepherd boy, the redheaded stepchild, the one who is ashamed and forgotten, you're now king. And you've just heard that, that your name and your family and your throne is going to last forever. And instead of, um, well, what's your response? Yeah, what do you do? Yeah, worship, thank you, absolutely. Like, you, I mean, because this is kind of where we're at, isn't it? Is it the God of the universe has bothered himself with you and me? He's chosen us. He's forgiven and renewed and redeemed us. I mean, yeah, even the person sitting next to you. It's unbelievable, right? It's incredible. And they're thinking the same thing about you, right? Like, this makes no sense. It's incredible. God loves you, like right now, right now. And so what did David do after he heard all that God was going to do for him? Well, he stopped. And he sat down. Eugene Peterson, in his book on King David, titled Leap Over the Wall, writes this about this verse. By sitting down, David got himself out of the driver's seat and deliberately and reverently placed himself before God, his king. David let himself be stopped by God. Now, this is no small feat because kings in the ancient Near East were considered deities. And so when you've been given that much power and authority, right, stopping some young, energetic, victorious king is akin to stopping a runaway train by standing in front of it. But that's what Nathan does. Nathan says, stop, listen. And this is exactly what David does. He stops and he listens. David let Nathan speak to him. David let God speak to him. Would you please let people speak to you right now in your life? God is speaking to you right now. Would you please listen? And what David did is that he didn't just do nothing, right? What did he do? He started praying. Faith isn't doing nothing, assuming that God is going to do everything for you. Faith isn't like pious procrastination. Faith isn't like religious lethargy. Neither is faith frenetically doing everything that you can, asking to God to bless all your frenzied plans and ill-advised reactions, hoping that something that you do will stick or make sense. That's not faith either. And we have a really hard time understanding Americans like how does faith play itself out in our daily life? How do I actually do this? What do you mean, stop? What do, what, I'm not supposed to build? I'm, what, like, what are you saying? We don't know how to read this passage. Let me help you. 
with a baking analogy. In the 1940s, after uh, the Second World War, Pillsbury Dough came out with a crazy new invention, and it was this, just add water cake mix. Did you ever have this when you were a kid? For those of you in this generation? And it's angel food cake mix, has 13 egg whites in it. All you had to do was add water. And it was, it was great. Mothers at this time, you know, the post-war era, they had their children like little monkeys hanging off of them. That was you, by the way, right? And they're like, I want a cake, but I have no time to make it with this herd, right, of wildebeest around me. And so I'll just add water and make the cake and it'll be great. And for a while, this was great. It went through the roof. But then sales started to slump in the 1950s, and they did some market research, and they found out this, that Americans felt like adding water was just too easy. <laughs> and so um, Pillsbury Dough's rival, Betty Crocker, came out with this cake mix, which is uh, the honey spice. Oh, that was a good one, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Betty Crocker said, look, um, See at the bottom, you add fresh eggs and water. And that's when Betty Crocker took over Pillsbury Dough as the number one cake mix manufacturer in the United States, the title that they've held to this day. But then something happened in the early 1960s. Nobody, nobody bought cake mixes. And they did market research, and you know what they found? It was too easy just to add water and an egg. So Betty Crocker did something which changed the cake world forever. And what they did, not oil, what they did <laughs> is this. They came out with a weird, ne next slide, John. They came out with frosting. Oh. And what people found is that if they added water and an egg, and then they added water to this weird frosting mix and it turned into frosting, that that gave them the satisfaction that they were actually making something and cake mixes have gone through the roof ever, ever since, right? I mean, like everybody loves cake and nobody makes their own frosting. Now they buy the frosting in a can and if you really want a stomach ache, uh, get a Costco muffin, cut the top off the mutton, put the frosting in between and I mean, <laughs> right? Because. Let's be honest, Costco muffins are just cake, right? And, right? Look, I know, some of you were like, ooh. That's on my keto diet, by the way, as well. Um, this is what we do with our faith. Like, we want to be involved. We just don't know what it looks like. Do I have to add water or an egg or a frog? Like, we don't know... We don't know what to do. Like, we, we think to ourselves, well, what's wrong with building a building? Like, wouldn't it be nice to build a building? Like, Solomon built a building. Why can't David build a building? And our brains confuse the issue of what faith is, so let me try and clarify it. Faith is a relationship word. It's a word that describes the kind of relationship you have with God. The issue isn't whether you're doing good things or how many good things you're doing. The issue is this. Are you listening to Jesus? Is he at the center of your life? Are you actually sitting before him like David and listening to him and pouring your life out to him? Faith is like a marriage in which you're actually listening to and talking to your spouse, not roommates, but madly in love.
Faith is like a friendship in which you talk to your friend about the most sacred parts of your life. Yeah, you can go shopping. Yeah, you can watch the game. But it's way deeper than that. It's, it's that you would have a partner that you would walk through and talk about the most important things of your life. That's the kind of relationship Jesus wants with you. Faith is like having a brother or sister that it's not just someone you tolerate, but it's like someone that you are absolutely for no matter where they are in your life and you've spent blood, sweat, money, and tears to prove it to them and they've done the same to you. That's the kind of relationship Jesus wants to have with you. Jesus wants all of you because he's given all of himself for you. And he wants to build a kingdom with you that will last forever. So I'm wondering if, if we could do the same thing that David does when he prays. And it goes like this. This is at the heart of David's lengthy prayer that you can read in 2 Samuel 7 when you get home. But the prayer is basically says this, Heavenly Father, I'm trading in my plans for your better plans. Jesus, I'm trading in my desires for your desires. Holy Spirit, I'm trading in going it alone for a life in step with you. Would, would you be willing to pray that with me? Yes. Sit up. Shrug your shoulders. Come on now. This is at the heart of what Christian transformation looks like. Bad out, good in. That's what we do at this church. Bad out. We're not just thinking good thoughts about Jesus. We want bad out, good in. Ready? Heavenly Father, I'm trading in my plans for your better plans. Jesus, I'm trading in my desires for your desires. Holy Spirit, I'm trading in going it alone for a life in step with you. Amen. So then, let's read exactly what David says, and it's this beautiful, I wanna just pick, highlight two little verses for you because what David does is that he actually talks to God with God in the center of his life, the God who saved him, the God who loved him, the God who's forgiven him, the same God who saved you and loved you and forgiving you right now. Read this with me. How great are you, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Oh, Lord Jesus, bless and seal these truths, these promises, these good things, these dangerous prayers that we've prayed with you, bless and seal them in our hearts. We mean it, Jesus. We want you to be at the center of every part of our life, and would you please give us the courage right now to repent, to confess and tell the truth, to follow directions, to receive mercy, to listen in a moment of temptation or when we're pushed to reaction, to listen to you, to be the kind of person that would give away mercy and love and kindness. Help, Jesus. We need you. Bless and seal these things in our heart. And I pray against the enemy's plans to discourage or rob or steal what, it, what you've done in us today. 
Now in Jesus' name, bless my friends. And thank you that we have cake with frosting in the fellowship hall. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. would you stand for the benediction? You know, we would love to pray for you today. If you, if you feel like I want to make a decision, I want someone to pray for me, Paul and myself and, and Lori and others will be up here. We would love to pray with you. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance, that's his delight in you, and give you the peace that passes all understanding. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. God bless you all. Have a great day.